Lord Jesus, we thank you that we can hold on because you hold on to us and you never let us go. Father, we ask now that you would help us to preach your word, your word that is victorious over all the darkness and despair and death and chaos of this world, your word that was spoken into the darkness and to the void that created all things. Lord God, would you speak your word um, even through me? It's such a weird thing to preach, Lord God, to talk about you. Seems kind of absurd to me most of the time. So Lord, would you send your spirit to impart your word to our hearts and cause us to believe what's true. In Jesus' name, amen. This is gold here. You're gonna have it. You're gonna have it. Drive me to town. If you give me water, I'll give it to you. what he said it was. He wanted to give it to me in exchange for a lift into town. Gold? Now, what in the world would he be doing with this gold? I don't know. It's probably off his rocker. Can you imagine that? He offered this to me as if it was really worth something. You know, wasn't it worth something once, George? I mean, didn't people use gold for money? Sure, about a hundred years or so ago, before they found a way of manufacturing it. The last of four Rip Van Winkles who all died precisely the way they lived, chasing an idol across the sand, to wind up bleached dry in the hot sun as so much desert flotsam, worthless as the gold bullion they built a shrine to. Tonight's lesson in the Twilight Zone. That man just, he just threw the gold away as if it had no value. And then that lady in the futuristic space car, she said, wasn't it worth something once, George? I mean, didn't at one time people use gold for money? This is, this is money. Was that as painful for you as it was for me? I mean, while I'm doing that, all these voices are going off in my head. You need to learn the value of money. You need to learn the value 
of, of a dollar. But what is money? What is a dollar? I mean, actually, it's, it's, it's really just green paper. It has no inherent value. It only has the value that we give to it. If you make $10 an hour, it represents six minutes of your time and effort. If you make $100 an hour, it represents 36 seconds of your time and effort. So, so not only does it have no value, except for the value that we give to it, the more we get it, the less value it has to us. And yet the more likely we are to get addicted to it and have a really hard time letting it go. Money is currency. We use money to obtain things of actual value, but money has no real or inherent value, kind of like an idol. Well, if, if burning a dollar is really difficult for you, like it is for me, maybe we're chasing an idol across the sand in the twilight zone. I mean, we want to be wealthy, right? But what is wealth? We want to be healthy, but maybe we don't know what health is. We want to prosper. The man weeping and gnashing his teeth alone in, in the desert in that old Twilight Zone episode was a thief. Along with three other thieves, he took gold from a train bound for Fort Knox in 1961, then fled to a cave in Desert Valley where uh, scientists had prepared these isolation chambers in order to freeze the thieves and effectively send them into the future where they planned to wake up and then enjoy the gold long after all of their enemies had died. But when they wake up in 2061, they fight over the gold. Only two of them remain. Then walking to civilization, one kills the other for the little bit of gold he can carry and a cup of water. Uh, the man who finds him in the desert is from the future, a future in which people have learned to manufacture gold. And so they use gold, but not for currency. They use it like we use asphalt, you know? They use it to like pave their roads which people walk upon. Imagine a city with streets of gold. Would that be prosperity? Imagine that you had all the money in the world. Would that be prosperity? Imagine that you were as healthy as, I don't know, like Richard Simmons or, or Jane Fonda or, or uh, Dr. Atkins or something. I mean, would that be prosperity? Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. No doubt God wants you to prosper. But what is prosperity. Revelation chapter 2 verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. We actually know quite a bit of, about Smyrna 
from the writings of antiquity, especially a man named uh, Polycarp, and the fact that Smyrna is still there. It was this uh, beautiful, well-built, wealthy city with these uh, gorgeous, large boulevards. The most famous of the boulevards was referred to as the Golden Street. But if you were a Christian, it was an incredibly dangerous street to walk down. In fact, Smyrna was maybe the, the most dangerous place in all of the empire for a Christian, and that was for two reasons. First, in 26 AD, Smyrna won a contest in order to erect a shrine to the emperor Tiberius. Smyrna was this great center for emperor worship, which would soon become a required civic duty throughout the Roman Empire. Secondly, Smyrna had a large Jewish population that was quite influential with the Roman authorities. The Jews were exempt from emperor worship because Judaism had become a, a, a recognized uh, religion within the empire, officially recognized. The early church considered themselves to be Jews. The 12 disciples were all Jews. And Gentiles in the church were grafted into that family tree, according to Scripture. But if the Jews that rejected the Messiah also rejected the Jews that trusted in the Messiah, that is, the Christians in Smyrna, if those Jews didn't want the Christian Jews hanging around the synagogue, all they had to do was to say to the Roman authorities, these guys say they're Jews, but they're not. And then those Christians would be subject to the confiscation of property, to torture, and to even death. They'd lose health, wealth, reputation as they were slandered by people that they loved. Revelation 2.8 And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich you're rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. You know, the Jews are God's chosen people. But the whole point of being chosen people is that you didn't choose. But God chose long before you were even capable of choosing. The whole Old Testament makes that abundantly clear, and Paul makes it abundantly clear in the New Testament. Romans 9, he points out that God chose Israel long before Israel could choose God in order to demonstrate that he has mercy on whom he will, whom he chooses to have mercy. It's his choice, Romans 9, 16. So then it depends not on human will, that's choice, or exertion, that's works, but upon God who has mercy. In other words, God chose to prosper the Jews. He just chose to prosper them. Prosperity is a gift. But the Jews were always tempted to think prosperity was their due that they had earned it. And isn't that the exact temptation of, of Satan? Take, take the fruit. Take the fruit and make yourself in the image of God. Take knowledge of, of the good and use it. Use it to justify yourself. Take the law, apply it, and make yourself, make yourself prosper. Prosperity is your due because you're better than your neighbor. Well, the synagogue of Satan 
would accuse the Christians of being godless. Devil means accuser. And then, as they were being persecuted, they'd slander them by suggesting that their sufferings were the obvious result of their lack of faith. Can you imagine that, someone saying that? Jesus says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. I know your tribulation. I just think it's fascinating that in the last hundred years, uh, people in prosperous Christians in Great Britain and the United States of America began to say, well, surely God will rapture his chosen people out of this place before tribulation. In the next chapter, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, Jesus does say this, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world, to try those who dwell on the earth. And so, so we might think, well, if Smyrna is experiencing some tribulation, uh, surely a little faith would save them from great tribulation. Turns out that Jesus has a rebuke for each of the seven churches except the church in Smyrna and Philadelphia. Unlike most of the churches, Smyrna was a model of faith, and so we'd expect God to reward that faith with some prosperity, right? According to a 2006 Pew survey, 46% of American Christians think God grants material possessions to believers. That is people that have faith. And 56% thinks that God rewards them, uh, the, those faithful, with, with health. Clearly, all health and wealth comes from God. And, and before Jesus would heal, he would often ask people for faith. But the idea that we can somehow purchase health and wealth with faith right now is a, is a rather different idea. It's often called the prosperity gospel. In, in its current form, it's relatively new. And yet, you'll find it all over your television set. I mean, it's everywhere. You'll even find it in the White House. In a recent article, Newsweek magazine defined the prosperity gospel as follows. The essence of the prosperity gospel is simple. Faith brings rewards. Not only in the afterlife, as taught in all mainstream forms of Christianity, but also in the earthly life. These rewards can take the form of health, career success, and most controversially, wealth. Faith purchases rewards, that is, prosperity. See, that would mean that faith is like a currency. So you can use faith to get prosperity. Kind of like you can use money to get a cheeseburger. Newsweek points out that the prosperity gospel teaches that you can get the prosperity now, while traditional Christianity says that, that you get it later. But, but that, that means that in the opinion of Newsweek, all Christianity is about using faith to obtain prosperity. Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you. 
plans to prosper you. That is a pretty popular verse down at the Christian bookstore. You know what I mean? You see it on plaques, pillows, everywhere. Plans to, plans to prosper you. And so we naturally think, if Smyrna is struggling a bit, surely Jesus is going to say, look, Smyrna, have some faith, and it'll work out. I mean, that'll preach. That's easy to preach. Have some faith. It, whatever you got, whatever you brought today, have some faith. It'll, it'll work out. Next verse. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10, 10 days, 10, 10 is the number of the law. 10 is also the number of the dragon's power. He is the accuser. Without the law, it's pretty hard to accuse. He is the accuser with 10 horns. That's what horns symbolize, 10 horns on his head. Well, anyway, uh, for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Be, be faithful unto death. Is that prosperity? Faithful unto, unto death? You know, Smyrna appears to be one of the most, if not the very most, faithful of all the churches. So they get what? More tribulation! Duh! And death! Some get death. And hopefully you notice that Jesus did not say, you're poor and you're going to be rich sometime in the future. He said, you are rich. Now! Do you ever get the feeling while reading the Bible that we really just don't know what riches are? or what the good is. And if we got a notion, we just might not want it, the good or, or the riches. To him who has, said Jesus, more will be given. Ah, sorry about that, Smyrna. But meet us in Laodicea, and we'll have a slideshow on the suffering in Smyrna. Take a collection and say a prayer, saying, Oh, Lord, please help those poor people in Smyrna. But Jesus just said they're rich. So who's poor? Who's rich? Sir and Kierkegaard told a parable about uh, an evil thief, the most evil thief that ever lived, that broke into a jewelry store and switched all the price tags. He didn't care about the jewels or the gold. He just hated the owner and all his customers because the price tags were switched. Young men would give fake jewels to, to, their, to their brides. Poor folks would wear diamonds and precious jewels and not even know it. Eventually, the cheap stuff would be exposed, you know, destroyed by fire or just by time, and the valuable stuff would be lost through neglect because people didn't even know what it was. Kierkegaard's point is that maybe this entire world is like that store and all the price tags have been switched. Maybe the price tags have been switched. Or maybe we couldn't read them in the first place. I mean, maybe we were born without the knowledge of good and evil. You know, that's the way Scripture refers to infants, that they have no knowledge of good or evil. They don't know the value of things. One day, about 20 years ago, I caught my son Coleman 
eating dirt. With obvious distress, I said, Coleman, stop that! Don't eat dirt! Never eat! What are you doing? Don't eat dirt! And then you know what happened? Coleman began to eat dirt. He, like, developed an addiction to dirt eating. He'd sneak in the backyard, eat dirt, and hide from me. And when I'd say, Coleman, Coleman, have you been eating dirt? He'd lie to me, trying to justify himself to me. And he'd say, no, Daddy, I haven't been eating any dirt. And there'd be like dirt caked all around his, his lips. House full of, of, of great food. Doors open. House full of great food. A great banquet, if you will. And Coleman would sneak out back, eat dirt in the dark, all alone. Maybe we're all like Coleman. See, we don't know the good from the not good. And then we get addicted to the not good, trying to make ourselves good. And then we hide our not good in outer darkness where we weep and gnash our teeth all alone. There are an awful lot of terribly wealthy people, both of people that, that, that feel incredibly alone. There are an awful lot of very healthy people that feel incredibly sick inside. There are an awful lot of powerful people trapped in outer darkness. That's how C.S. Lewis pictured hell in The Great Divorce, this place where people get whatever they want, but in getting whatever they want, they, they become incapable of wanting other people. So who's poor and who's rich. Jesus says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. Why are they rich in Smyrna? Poverty and tribulation are not riches, but maybe they expose riches. I read about a, a first grader coming home from her first day of school in a recently desegregated school sometime in the 60s in, in, in the South. If you were alive at that time, you remember the, the tribulation. Well, this anxious mother met her daughter at the door, obviously uh, concerned, and she inquired, honey, how, how was it? How, how was it? Oh, mommy, said the little girl, you know what? A little black girl came in, and she sat right next to me. In fear and trepidation, the mother tried to act calm. She said, what happened? We were both so scared, said the little girl. We were both so scared that we held hands all day, all day. That's rich. They were rich. Rabbi Kushner told about this Chinese woman that had lost her family and went to a wise man in order to get counsel on how to deal with all of her grief. And the wise man instructed her to go to every, every person, every house in the village and uh, obtain a mustard seed from every person that had not known grief. She did, and of course, every person had known grief. Yet, in the process of sharing in their poverty and sharing her poverty, she became rich. She gained a family the size of a village. She didn't gain one mustard seed, but she gained faith. 
in love that grew into a kingdom. Tribulation and, and poverty have a way of breaking the hard soil of our heart and making space for a seed, a seed that grows into a kingdom. They break our egos and reveal a spirit inside. In tribulation and poverty, we all lose, and then we all win each other. Maybe they were rich in Smyrna because they knew each other. Maybe they were rich in Smyrna because they knew Jesus. Philippians 3.10, St. Paul wrote, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That was Paul's greatest wish, that I may know him. An old rabbi renowned for his piety was interrupted by an enthusiastic, devoted young disciple. In a burst of feeling, this disciple exclaimed, My master, I love you! The old rabbi slowly looked up from his dusty books and he said, Son, do you know what hurts me, my son? Do you know? The young man was puzzled, composing himself. He stuttered, I don't understand your question, Rabbi. I'm trying to tell you how much I love you, how much you mean to me, and you confuse me with these irrelevant questions. My question is neither confusing nor irrelevant, said the rabbi. For if you do not know what hurts me, how can you say you love me? So do you know what hurts Jesus? And Jesus is a Jew. He was betrayed by the Jews, his family. In particular, Judas, which means Jew. Judas, who was his friend who had been overcome by Satan. Judas, Jesus, Jesus was betrayed and slandered by a synagogue of Satan, and he was crucified by Gentiles, that is, Romans. He says, I know, Smyrna, I know your tribulation and your poverty. Maybe that's because it was his tribulation and his poverty. And, and, Maybe all suffering can be or is his suffering. Isaiah writes, he has borne our griefs and carries our, carried our sorrows. The, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And, and, and John will soon reveal that this happened from the foundation of the world. So Jesus bore it long before you ever felt it. Maybe all your grief is an invitation to share in Christ's suffering in order that you might know him. Smyrna will also know the power of his resurrection, but even now in their poverty, they know him, and so they're rich. They're prosperous. They know Jesus, and they know each other. Maybe that's prosperity. Maybe that's love. Maybe they're rich with faith in love, and God is love. Whatever the case, if they're rich in Smyrna and they're not rich in places like Laodicea, we'll read about them in the next chapter.
in Laodicea, uh, they say that they're rich, have prospered, and need nothing. And, and Jesus says that they're actually wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So, if they're rich in Smyrna and poor in Laodicea, then prosperity isn't gained through a process of addition. That would mean prosperity is gained like through a process of subtraction. In fact, the Lord's counsel to Laodicea is to purchase from him gold refined by fire. Scripture says that our faith is like gold refined by, by fire. Fire burns away the dross and reveals the gold. If it's hot enough, even gold will burn, but faith will never burn. So faith isn't gained through a process of addition, but subtraction. And perhaps prosperity is not gained through a process of addition, but subtraction. I had this weird little experience last Saturday when uh, we were in New Mexico visiting for my mom's birthday. One afternoon, I just decided to go for a jog, kind of a walk jog. And I was... Uh, just alone on this street somewhere in Albuquerque when I, I, I just stopped and suddenly realized that I was just terribly happy. All I had were my shorts, a t-shirt, and, and some, some jogging, some cheap tennis shoes, and, and I, I was happy. Nobody knew where I was. Nobody driving by knew who I was. You see, I was like momentarily free from the burden that is me, or I should say the burden of the false me. <laughs> I was just me. It reminded me of a similar experience 10 years ago sitting in the parking lot of a Big Lots or some such store, something like that. It was near Colfax and Federal. I had just been defrocked and I was being slandered. I had just lost my job and lost my reputation and suddenly I realized that I was just happy. And I loved everybody I saw in the parking lot at, at Big Lots. I shared these word experiences with Kathleen this week, and, and she said this. She said, yeah, I feel happy when I don't feel important. Why do we want money, power, and reputation? Isn't it so that we would feel important? But what if we already are important? Like an infant is important to its mom or its dad. Well, then all our efforts to become important might continually block us from the realization that we are important to God. To the Corinthians, who were arguing over who was important, Paul wrote this, So let no one boast of men, for all things are yours. All are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. In other words, you're just like crazy rich. You are crazy rich. And if you don't know that you're crazy rich, something must be blocking you from all of these crazy riches. Like maybe your desire for riches that aren't actually riches or your desire for prosperity that isn't actually prosperity. See, I think that's what I momentarily lost in the parking lot on Colfax, the burden of my desire for money, power, and prestige. The burden of having to produce health, wealth, 
and prosperity. Uh, the burden of the me that I think I have to create. The burden of myself. <clears throat> it's a heavy burden. Remember this picture? I showed it to you um, about a year ago. This is me. Or maybe a likeness of, of me. Me when I was born. When I was born, I was surrounded by love. I've actually never not been surrounded by love because God is love, and in Him we live and move and have our being. But I didn't really know love from not love. I didn't know good from evil. So I listened to a lie that I had to make myself good, and so I began to take what I thought was good to make myself good, which isn't good, because love is, is good. To make a, a long story very short, I grew one of these. an important grown-up me that I call myself, that I think the Bible calls the flesh, and by that, Scripture doesn't simply mean a body. It means an ego. Maybe it's my ego, my flesh, my need to justify myself that keeps me from the outrageous prosperity that is God and is all around me. And maybe that's why Jesus said, unless you receive the kingdom like a child, you'll never enter it. A child, you know, has no money, no power, no prestige, reputation. Maybe that's why Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up a cross. A man who takes up a cross has surrendered all money, power, and reputation. He has denied himself. The chairman of the Presidential Board of Evangelical Advisors is also a well-known prosperity preacher. According to Newsweek and to multiple sources, she once told an audience, anyone that tells you to deny yourself is from Satan. Now, maybe she misspoke, okay, because I'm a preacher and I say all kinds of crazy stuff. I mean, maybe she misspoke, and I'm sure she didn't really understand what she was saying, but that's profoundly backwards, isn't it? I hope you see why. You see, the problem with the so-called prosperity gospel is that it's not the gospel. And it teaches you to be profoundly poor. Just like the church in Laodicea, who, who thought she was, in the words of Jesus, rich, had prospered, and needed nothing, when in fact she was wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. All things were hers, just as in Smyrna, but she couldn't receive all things because she was full of herself, or trapped in herself, would not deny herself. The problem with the so-called prosperity gospel is that it teaches us to eat dirt alone, in outer darkness, when the doors to the great banquet are just wide open in front of us. At the end of the Revelation, we see the new Jerusalem coming down. The gates of the city are never shut by day, and in the city there is no night. Outside is everyone who loves and practices falsehood. In other words, outside is everyone who eats dirt, <laughs> and the gates are wide open. Coleman's 23 now. How sad if I found Coleman on Thanksgiving Day in the backyard all alone eating dirt and hiding from me. 
You see, it wasn't hate that gave him a little tribulation when he was three. It was love and a desire to make him rich with turkey, mashed potatoes, and, and me. We love Jeremiah 29.11, but forget that it completes Jeremiah 29.10, wherein God explains to the Jews that he's sending them into exile for 70 years. Now, that means you're going to die there, right? 70 years. He sent them into exile for 70 years where they are commanded to love their enemies. For, Jeremiah 29.11, God knows the plans he has for them, plans to prosper them, to give them hope and, and a future. See, the problem with the so-called prosperity gospel is that it switches all the price tags, just like the most evil thief in Kierkegaard's story. Nothing's wrong with gold. It's just not as valuable as people. Satan will teach you to use people to love gold. I think God made gold in order that you could use gold to love people. In the New Jerusalem, the main street is paved with gold. But check this out, Revelation 21, 21. It's transparent as glass. You can't see it! But you'll see the people walking on it, supported by it. Actually, the city is made of people, the last and the least of these. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Of them consists the kingdom of God. And blessed are those persecuted for righteousness' sake, the slandered. Of them is the kingdom of God. That's a literal translation. It's like constructed of them. Nothing's wrong with gold and nothing's wrong with money. Use money. Use it to love people, but never use people to love money. Use money to love God, but never use God to love money. I mean, do, do we see how distorted, how depraved that idea is? Money is currency. It's a human measure of human effort. Money is currency. It has no inherent value. Faith is not currency. Prosperity teachers teach that we should use faith to gain things hoped for, but faith is not a payment for things hoped for. Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the substance of things hoped for. God is love. And faith is the gift of love. You gain faith through an encounter with love. Faith in you is the spirit of Christ Jesus in you. Never simply use faith as if faith were a thing. Never use faith to gain prosperity. Faith is prosperity. Jesus says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. Be faithful unto death. Is that prosperity? Yes! That's life. Life is losing yourself and finding yourself. Life is faith and love. Life is, Jesus is the life. Verse 10, be faithful unto death and I will give you, give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, the, the, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The second death is sacrificing yourself, your ego, your pride, your flesh. It's 
losing yourself for the sake of love and finding yourself in Jesus. You're Christ's body. The first death, this is a body part, is isolation from the body. The second death is the death of that death. It's communion in the body. The second death is the death of death and the beginning of life. You won't be hurt by the second death if you've already been crucified with Christ. For you've already denied yourself and begun to live eternally. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So who is the one who, who, who conquers. Remember the letter isn't written to the church, but to the angel of the church, which appears to be the spirit of the Lamb, and the revelation reveals that the Lamb has conquered. Verse 10, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, parazzo, also translated tempted. Jesus was tested and tempted right after he was baptized, and immediately after hearing a voice from heaven that said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The spirit then immediately drove Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted and tested by the devil who tempted Jesus with bread, miracles, and political power. Tempted Jesus with wealth, health, and a great reputation. He tempted Jesus to make himself important. but Jesus knew that he already was important. He knew that he was his father's beloved son in whom he was well pleased. That's faith. And faith in you is the word of God in you. It's the spirit of Jesus in you rising from the dead. Well, Smyrna was rich. Some of you are rich, but you think you're poor. You, you think you're poor because maybe you don't have much money, or your health isn't that good, or you're being slandered by people that, that you love, and so I just need to tell you that you're rich so that you wouldn't try to make yourself rich and become poor. Some of you are rich, but you think you're poor. Maybe some of you are poor and you think you're rich, and I need to tell you that you're poor. And you need to buy gold refined by fire. You can find it over in Smyrna, and Smyrna is actually all around you. Smyrna is rich. Smyrna doesn't just have riches. Smyrna is rich. I think this is fascinating because you can read this online and I'll read part of it to you, but sometime around 160 AD, a letter was written by the leadership of the church in Smyrna that was circulated to all the churches in Asia Minor. It's a letter of gratitude for what God had recently done in Smyrna. It recounts how 12 believers had recently been uh, martyred, 11 scourged and then devoured by beasts in the Colosseum in Smyrna, and the last given over to the fire. The 12th martyr was the 86-year-old bishop of Smyrna 
who knew John, who wrote the Revelation as a young man, who had no doubt read the Revelation out loud in that little church in Smyrna countless times. The authorities decided to burn this 86-year-old Polycarp. They decided to burn him at the stake because he refused to sacrifice to the emperor. Jews from the synagogue gathered wood for the fire. Bound to the stake, he prayed, thanking God that he was counted worthy to share in the cup of Christ and requesting that he would be a worthy, acceptable sacrifice. When they lit the fire, it encompassed Polycarp but did not consume him until finally, in desperation, the executioner took a spear and thrust it into his side just as the Roman centurion thrust a spear into Jesus' side. While the fire raged around him, witnesses said he appeared, and I quote, not as flesh that is burnt, but as bread that is baked as gold and silver glowing in a furnace. Maybe Polycarp was gold. Didn't just have gold. Maybe Polycarp was gold refined by fire. Whatever the case, he was definitely filled with faith. And faith in us is Christ in us. Like no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, I live by faith of the Son of God who loved me. Money will burn, but faith can't burn. Because faith is the fire. The old bishop of Smyrna not only had riches, he is rich. Smyrna is rich. Well, on the night that he was betrayed by the synagogue of Satan and handed over to the Roman authorities, Jesus took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the covenant in my blood. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. The cup of the covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins. This is the substance of prosperity. And this is the gospel. In Jesus' name, believe the gospel. Receive it. Amen.